0: Amen. Y'all could be seated. As we launch into our brand new preaching series today, God at Work in the Shadows on the, the Book of Esther, I wanted to start out by showing you some things that I've seen this week. The first one actually came from this morning. I was out for my walk and I looked over towards Mingus Mountain and saw that beautiful sunrise. I, I had to take a picture. Uh, partially just because it's awesome but secondly it ties in with where we're going today because whether it's a, a sunrise or a sunset have you noticed that in order for them to be as awesome as they can be you need some clouds mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's why this season is great around here right so you'll be taking pictures many times each day Need clouds for the most glorious sunsets. I want to show you another picture. Yesterday I went down to the PV library. They had a free show. um, Some world-class BMX riders down there. And I took my son Evan and my nephew Caleb. And you can see what's going on here. They had a, a ramp. And you have a guy standing, but not just standing. He's got his arm in the air. And the other guy managed to jump over top of him on that ramp. Now, I was thinking, you know, they could have just done some ground tricks, which they did, and those were kind of cool. But in order for them to really show what they could do, they ramped up the difficulty. And it's with that ramp which made things harder that enabled us to see something that awesome. Why do I share that with you? I share that with you because not always, but many times, if you think about history and maybe even your own life, God does some of his best work when things are hard. God does some of his best work when our lives are cloudy. You could could trace it through the Bible. Think about the garden, the tragedy of the fall of man and the sin that it brought into the world. But he announces his eternal plan to the serpent. One of her descendants will crush your head. Egypt would loom large in the, the minds of Israel, right? Centuries of slavery. But what did God say? Pharaoh will see my glory. You will see my glory. And oh, they did in that deliverance and, and his carrying them through the wilderness. Esther's like that. Esther was another dark season in Israel's history. You remember the the context if, if you know your Old Testament. God had promised blessings to the Israelite nation for obedience and curses for disobedience, among them being captivity. And if you know your history, you know that in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, after they divided, was scattered in the Assyrian Empire. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken into captivity in Babylon and if you know your world history a little bit, you know there were four major empires around that time, starting with Babylon. Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome. We're going to find ourselves in the, the Persian Empire. If you know your Bibles, you know that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are history that tell us what happened among The Jews who came back to the promised land because Jeremiah had prophesied after 70 years. You're going to come back. But history tells us at that point, at least initially, only about 50,000 of the Jews took God up on that offer. Many of them stayed in the Babylonian Empire, which would become the, the Persian Empire. So we, we know from Ezra and Nehemiah that God was at work with his people who returned. But what about those who stayed in the land of their captivity? Was, was God at work there? Enter the book of Esther. And we learn something here that God is always faithful. He is faithful to his promise to bless. He is also faithful to his promise to discipline when that's appropriate but to take it one step further he is faithful to his children even in the midst of their discipline he's faithful to his promises and that's some of what we're going to see in the book of Esther say why did I call it God at work in the shadows well if you've read the book there's an interesting trait about the book of Esther the name of God is never mentioned Now, there are multiple theories about why, and you can study those. But I like what commentator Matthew Henry said. And the Jews would have agreed with him because they always accepted this book as part of their scripture. Matthew Henry said his name might not be mentioned, but his finger is everywhere. That's why I call it God at work in the shadows. We are going to see 12 or more events that God used to bring about a great deliverance for his children, the Jews. Some of those events were very unexpected and and very surprising and, and very dark. You say, what's that have to do with us in 2022? Well, I believe the same is true today. God is working in all of history To work toward his desired end, a great deliverance for his children today as well, taking us to be with him. That makes all the difference in our perspective, right? If we believe that. It's it's a vast difference between man's speculation that we call evolution, right? Right? Right, that leads to one mindset. One one guy summed up that mindset like this: We started out as protoplasm, and one day we're going to be manure. <laughs> and then we wonder why the angst in our society. But all that is is man's speculation. Because guess what? Man wasn't there. <laughs> I, I prefer to go with God's revelation, which says not only did He create us, but He is working all things toward his desired end. Does that not make a vast difference in our perspective? The belief of this book, and I want to start with the first of three B's, the belief of this book shows us two things to believe about God. The first one is that God is absolutely sovereign. You know what that means? It means no matter what things look like in my life and world, he is in absolute control. He has not forgotten anything. He has not let anything slip through his fingers by accident. He is in control. Job 42:2, it is said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Many have tried. The promise still stands. When God has a purpose, it cannot be thwarted. That's sovereignty. The second thing we can believe about our God is providence. You know what providence is? It means that He is working in the day-to-day to to accomplish His will. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He doesn't author the evil. He doesn't tempt us to evil. But He uses it all for His purposes. You've heard this before, but I always enjoy it. How frustrating that must be to Satan. (laughs) he's playing checkers God is playing chess and his purposes are being accomplished and will be accomplished here's a verse for providence Ephesians 1.11. we serve a God who quote works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will do you believe those two things about God whatever season you find yourself in in life that he's sovereign and he's working in the day to day I hope so. I want to shift from the belief about God in the book to a banquet. A glorious banquet. Esther chapter 1 verse 1. says, now in the days of Ahasuerus. Now I have to stop here and just say a personal, very meaningful thank you to all of our readers during this book. It starts out with Ahasuerus and it doesn't get any better. These names are something else. Okay, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. Do you know the Greek name for this man that's recorded by Herodotus? Who was this ruler of Persia? Xerxes. Xerxes, absolutely. And it says he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. I want to show you the the vast scope of the Persian Empire from 550 to 330 BC. You can see over on the east, Pakistan to the west, all the way to Egypt. It was massive. And Xerxes was king, absolute monarch over this empire. Now, note, if you encounter skeptics out there, they'll say, hey, that talks about 127 provinces, but other books of the Bible talk about a much lower number of divisions called satrapies. Well, biblical scholars have said, don't let that trip you up. Satrapy is likely just a larger division, right? There may be 20 satrapies, but within those satrapies, each one has multiple provinces. So it's not really a contradiction. But to set us in world history a little bit, we we talked about the empires. I want to talk to you about some of the kings that reigned before Xerxes. And you may have heard of some of these names. You ever heard the name Cyrus? Cyrus, who was prophesied in Isaiah 45, his very existence over 100 years before he ever came to be. Because of our sovereign God speaking to Isaiah. Cyrus who was the one who would fulfill what Jeremiah said after 70 years you'll go back he he took the throne and said Jews you could go back that was Cyrus then there was Darius Darius under his rule the the Jews rebuilt that temple who had gone back and he even encouraged them some troublemakers tried to get the Jews to stop and Darius was like no don't make them stop and oh p.s. you all help them give them what they need right that was Darius and And then you have Xerxes, our our ruler that that we're dealing with. And let me talk about how he fits in biblical history. The the scholars believe that if you read the book of Ezra, he fits right between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, you'll remember they came back under Zerubbabel, started the rebuilding of the temple, finished it. You get to Ezra 6. And Esther comes in. Then you go to Ezra 7. Ezra comes, encourages the people spiritually. And then who comes? Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the wall. So even though our Bibles have Nehemiah first, it actually comes historically after the book of Esther. So here we are between Ezra 6 and 7. What's going on in the foreign land? We get a glimpse inside. Verse 2, it says, In those days when King Ahasuerus, don't you want to say bless you when I say that? bless you. (laughs) In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Say, where was Susa? That was in Iran. And historians tell us that was his winter palace. He was a snowbird like me. Any snowbirds in here? So we live in Canada part time, and we got a snowbird right here. He does up and down between Phoenix and, and up here. You all know what I'm talking about. It it was historically hot there in the summer, so he wouldn't be there in the summer. But in the winter time, he would go to Susa. Verse three says, "In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants." The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. How many days? 180 days. I've been to some parties. You've been to some parties. Have you ever been to a 180-day party? Wow, the skeptics have looked and said, how could all the province's leaders come for 180 days? Wouldn't that be foolish? Wouldn't that leave the empire vulnerable? Another easy answer. Scholars believe they likely came in rotation throughout that 180 days. Some came at one period, went home. Some came another period, but the whole time Xerxes is there. And what is he doing? What's the purpose? To show the riches of his royal glory. And the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Right? Now historians have told us. That prior to Xerxes. The Persian Empire suffered. A crushing defeat. And he wanted to get revenge. Against Greece. And many historians believe. That this 180 day gathering was not only a party. It was planning. It was planning to get revenge on Greece. And so you can start to see there's a lot more than just a a party going on. And he wants to show them his riches, his royal glory. He's kind of proud, I believe. Look at me. Look at me. Look at all I've got. You can trust me to lead you into battle against Greece because look at me. He would have done well to listen to a Babylonian forebear named Nebuchadnezzar who ended up eating grass like a cow when he started thinking like that, until he acknowledged that only the Lord is God. I don't think he, he learned that lesson. He, he was a prideful man, I believe, and I also believe he had a great thirst for worldly power. Okay? Verse 5. When the 180 days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden Of the king's palace, so now us us little guys get to go. So far, it's been all the governors and the nobles. Now we all get to come, and party for seven days in the the empire. There, verse six. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl and precious stones this was this was cribs before cribs was a show right this was like wow this place was was decked out and what's cool is there was a french archaeologist who who went there in the 1800s to susa and he discovered many parts of this palace the king's gate inner court outer court palace garden that we heard about And even one of the pure that comes in later in the story, the the lots, the dice, found one of those there. This palace in Susa. So I believe he was a prideful man. I I believe he had a great thirst for worldly power. But I also believe he was a man ruled by his own passions. Didn't always make the wisest decisions because there were moments where he allowed his passions to take over and lead him to do otherwise. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So you got a teetotaler there that doesn't want to drink anything? Okay, he's good, but you got somebody that says, I want to drink all day, every day? Xerxes said, bring it on. Do as you each desire. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So you got a men's feast and a women's feast going side by side. Verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and I'm just going to jump to the seven eunuchs, okay? (laughs) Save us all some time. But you know, I always, I always smile at that last name, carcass. <laughs> you know we're dealing with a different language here because none of us name our kids carcass in English, right? We might say, get your carcass out of bed. <laughs> but these guys are, are seven eunuchs. You say, what's up with that? Well, that wasn't uncommon in that time. High leaders around the king were often castrated so that they would not be a threat to start their own dynasty against the king. So the king goes to these guys who, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now I could be wrong, but I don't think he would have made this request if he had been in his right mind. It tells us part of why he made this request in verse 10. He says, the heart of the king was, was merry with wine. Now, I'm not going to sit here and preach that the Bible says you should be a teetotaler. I believe in moderation if you choose that path and you're not causing someone to stumble. But when it says his heart was merry with wine, most scholars believe he was drunk. This is not a smart choice. I'm going to bring my wife into this room full of drunk men. And, and just show her off. Hebrew scholars think it's even darker than it looks on the surface. That when he talks about wearing her crown, that that meant only her crown. This is a man controlled by his passions. That battle I was talking about, that he was preparing for, he, he would go on to, to lose the battle of Thermopylae and salamis. That was not over lunch meat. It's an actual place in the empire, but he lost both of those. And you talk about a man ruled by his passions, not thinking straight. When he lost the battle at sea, historians tell us he went out there and literally whipped the sea where he lost. Controlled by his his passions. He had men working on a bridge for, for one of his campaigns and things weren't going as planned. He had many of his own men beheaded. This is a man controlled by his passions. And in this moment, I believe he's also controlled by his drunkenness. How would Vashti reply? Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Now, he would have done well at this point if he was thinking straight just to say, oh well, and move on, right? Right? But he's not thinking straight. I believe he's drunk and his anger becomes apparent right here. Verse 12 says, At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And not only that, he's going to take it to the next level. He's going to try to figure out what he should do. He's going to bring in his advisors. Verse 13, The king said to the wise men who knew the times, For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him, and I'm going to jump to the end again. These are men who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. What? He's going to bring this up to his his council, his board of advisors, who may also be drunk at this point. Verse 15, he says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she is not performed at the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. He's not content to let it go, let it go and he wants to bring the law against her. Then Mamukin, one of his advisors, said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Now, was it really that big a deal? <laughs> These guys... Likely in a drunken stupor, are blowing this way out of proportion, right? What's he say in verse 17? For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. They're, they're looking at their own house and saying, uh-oh, if we let this just go on, our, our own wives are going to start doing this stuff. Verse 19, they say, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Talk about going overboard. And he goes on, Let the king give her royal position to another, who is better than she. And so the proclamation goes out historians tell us the Persian empire had quite a pony express similar to the one we've heard of in our country one man would take a message on a fast horse to one post another one would take it and there it goes through the 127 provinces i told you what history tells us after this planning meeting xerxes went on to lose those battles He was planning for, which led to the eventual overtaking of the Persian Empire by the Greeks, right? But those secular historians do not mention Esther. Some skeptics have tried to use that as a way of saying, see, this did not really happen. But biblical scholars look at that and say that's not that uncommon. Many times royalty had had many wives and we're not told even that she was the main one let me ask you this how many of you know all the names of the wives of solomon (laughs) why not because they're not listed right and we know from this very book that they weren't always that intimate because when it comes time for her to go to him she says something like i haven't seen him for 30 days Okay, so they're not necessarily all that close. The secular world focused on these empires. Little did many of them know that God was at work here in the lives of a Hebrew gal named Esther. And think about this. What was God using? He was using a man, Xerxes, controlled by his pride, controlled by his passions, Controlled by his thirst for power, what? To make an opening for Queen Esther. What was the decision? Let the king give Vashti's royal position to one who is better than she. Now, did Xerxes have Esther in mind when when they agreed to this? No. But God did. And here's the bottom line. Whether we see it or not, God is working in the shadows, even today. He's working all things according to the purpose of his perfect will. And I thought before we close, wouldn't it be great to see this in church history a little bit? I believe even this was divine providence. As I was preparing for this series, I was in the produce department at Walmart one day, and I saw my buddy Daniel Lizarraga down there, and Daniel was talking to me about how much he loved church history that he learned growing up after the bible times between then and now he said because because i saw how god worked in that that meantime and i thought hey wouldn't it be great since this is a theme of this series to share some examples in each of these messages from church history of god working in the shadows to encourage us today so i'm going to do that i'm going to share just a couple and, of course, we have to start with the foundation, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see it right there. You remember the, the Jewish leaders could not stand him. And they were plotting his death. And you remember wicked Caiaphas, the high priest, who was in on that, at the head of it. I love John eleven forty seven. Even in their wickedness, we see God at work. not that the whole nation should perish. Now, when he said that, was, was he meaning Jesus as the Messiah who would bring salvation to his people? Not at all. He was meaning, hey, if we take this guy out, we're not going to get any more trouble from the Roman Empire. But I love what John says. He says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see what God did? He, he put a prophecy in the mouth of a wicked leader. And he said he was in control. Think about the book of Acts. Think about the stoning of Stephen, the, the first Christian martyr that we're aware of. You talk about a, a dark moment, right? But what happened? Acts 8 1 says, Saul approved of his execution. Just, you just pause there. Think of the impact this must have had on Saul, who we also know as Paul, the, the faithfulness of Stephen to the end. But it goes on in Acts 8 1 there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And what did they do as they scattered? They shared the gospel. (laughs) Was that what they wanted to start at the martyrdom of Stephen? The leaders? No. But that's what happened and that's how the disciples began to fulfill what Jesus had told them to do in Acts 1.8. You go a little bit forward in church history and you think about Roman emperors' ultimate authority to the point where People in the empire were told to offer incense to them and and tell them Caesar is Lord. This this was not an elected official. This is the top dog with absolute authority. And you think about those emperors who reigned over the early church. And aside from Constantine in there, most of them went from ambivalent toward the Christian faith and and some went hostile. How, How would God work under such pagan? Rulers. Well, one of those pagan rulers was an emperor named Julian. I love what he said. He's, he's wanting people to start worship the Roman gods more, but Christianity keeps spreading. This is what a, a Roman emperor, Julian, wrote. Atheism, and you got to know he's talking about Christians. Why would he call Christians atheists? That's foreign to us, because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Same when he talks about Jews and Galileans later on. That includes Jews and Galileans who followed Christ, okay? So, so listen, atheism, Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. It kept spreading because Christians were living like Christians. They were loving each other and they were loving their neighbors. They were even loving their enemies. And it frustrated Julian to no end. We said at worst they were hostile. We know the accounts of of early Christians Sometimes sewn up in the skins of wild animals and given to the beasts, the dogs to devour. We know the stories of the Colosseum. And I want to talk to you about a man named Polycarp, born in 69. Most believe he was a disciple of the Apostle John. and He was the the bishop of Smyrna, a very loving bishop, pastor over his, his flock. And he was called in. By a Roman governor who was reluctant to kill him. He tried to give him every way out. All you have to do is recant, turn away from Jesus, say, Caesar is Lord, or you'll be given to the animals, to the beasts. History tells us that what Polycarp said in that moment, he he looked up at King Jesus in his eyes of faith, and he said, my king has served me faithfully for 86 years. Why would I speak evil of him now? He also, when they spoke of the beasts, history tells us, he said, bring on the beasts. And the Romans said to him, if you scorn the beasts, you'll be burned. He looked at him and he said, you speak to me of temporary fire, but you forget the eternal fires of hell. And he stayed there faithful to the very end and gave his life burned at the stake for Jesus Christ. And Bruce Shelley wrote a great book called Church History in Plain Language. I'm going to be referring to it throughout this series. He said that there are numerous accounts of pagans being converted at moments just like that. Because they saw a man or woman like Polycarp hold on even unto death. And thought to themselves, he must have something I need to hold on that faithfully. And I think about moments like that. I think about Esther. I think about how how do you defeat a God who gives his children strength in their moments of weakness? How do you defeat a God who brings resurrection out of death? How do you defeat a God who works all things according to the counsel of His will? Answer, you don't. Which leads us all to a very important question. Which side of this am I on? Am I an enemy of God? Or have I come to Him in faith through Jesus Christ, where I can say, He is for me. Not against me. We need this confidence that God is sovereign. That he is provident. Whether it's world headlines. Maybe you read like I did this morning that Russia and China are doing joint military drills. Maybe it's the godless whims blowing through our own nation as we look around. Maybe it's more personal. There's someone in your life making your life miserable by their thirst for power, their pride, or, or being controlled by their, their passions. These truths about God are not meant to make us passive. You know what they're meant to do? They're meant to give us peace in the midst of the storm and to help us persevere. To say, Lord, I know we're walking into some darkness, but I trust you. I believe you're in control. I believe you're working all of this toward your desired outcome. And I will walk with you faithfully because I trust you. As I close, I I just want to say this. I thought in this series it would also be great to touch on that age-old question, where is God in the midst of suffering? Maybe you're wrestling with that today because of something you're going through in your life. You're not the first one. If you reach out a little bit, you'll probably find that most of us in this room have have wrestled with that at some point. I have. And many Christians throughout history have. And many of them have written books to help us at those moments. So I'm going to bring in some of the the best insight that I find from those writings. One of them this week came from Kay Arthur. She wrote a book called, Lord, Where Are You When Bad Things Happen? It's a study of the the book of Habakkuk. You remember the book of Habakkuk, right? Another hard time. Habakkuk looks around his nation of Judah and says, man, these people are wicked. Are you going to just let this go on, God? And God says, no. I'm going to send the Babylonians to, to discipline them. And then Habakkuk's like, the Babylonians, those guys are worse than we are. And then God tells them, they'll get theirs too. Just trust me. And in the middle of that book, we have that verse, the righteous shall live by his, his faith. But he takes those questions to God. We can do that too, right? And she summarized five ideas that I think will help us when we think about God's sovereignty and providence. Number one, God is in control of history, Number two, she writes that all history pivots on Israel and the church. She's talking about human history, obviously. I would add the glory of God, and I'm sure she would as well. Hinges on Israel and the church, God's people, right? Third one, whether we see it or not, there is a purpose in everything. Number four, that includes our own times. And number five, Faith that rejoices in God is the key to overcoming our doubt and our fear. And that all leads us to where the book of Habakkuk closed. He, he still knew bad things were coming. Habakkuk 3.16 Speaking of the the judgment from the Babylonians that was coming, he says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He was honest as he wrestled with what was going to be going on in his world. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What's that say? I believe you're just God and that they will get theirs in your due time. And he closes with this. Can we say this, believer? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are sovereign and that you are working. And I pray for anyone that came in here buried under worry and fear that those truths would, would set them free today to joy and peace and contentment in your perfect plan. That though we may not always understand what you're doing, we can know you and and trust you. That you're working towards your desired end. I thank you for the cross where where we saw your hand on a dark day, perhaps brighter than any other. Jesus came, God in flesh, and mankind put him on a cross but it was all according to your perfect will. He did rise again, and he did bring salvation to spread around the world as Caiaphas prophesied, though he didn't intend to. Thank you. May this remembrance of that through communion be special to your heart and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name.